So last time, I gave an account of the origins of Hume's philosophy, aiming to explain how quite a number of his interests could be seen as linking together. Now, I'm going to start today by saying a little bit more on that theme and giving an overview of how some of these things play out in his philosophy. And then I'm going to talk about some fundamentals of Hume's logic, that is, the overall logical structure uh, of his thought as we see it in book one of the treatise, where I hope that what you learn from that will help you to understand a great deal of what's going on there. In particular, I'll be saying something about Hume's theory of ideas and his faculty psychology. Next week, I'll be saying something about his theory of relations, uh, and then we'll be getting into the main body of his famous arguments. So I ended last time saying that we have here an integrated vision. Uh, Hume's interest in the cosmological argument for God's existence, free will, and in particular how that plays out with the problem of evil, um, his opposition to a prioristic metaphysics, the idea that just sitting in our armchair we can work out things about the causation of thought, for example. Um, his view of human beings as part of the natural world, which is a very major theme throughout Hume's philosophy. All of these can be seen, and should be seen, I think, as hanging together. Now, if you look at the treatise, it's not quite so obvious how this is so. And that's because in the treatise there's an awful lot of other stuff, some of which we'll be talking about shortly. In the treatise, Hume is trying to give a very systematic theory of um, many aspects of human thinking. But if we look at the abstract of the treatise, which appeared, well, it appeared in March 1740, but it was written in the autumn of 1739, so you know, sort of nine months or so after he's published books one and two of the treatise. And if we look in the inquiry concerning human understanding of 1748, where the pattern of argument is very similar to that of the abstract, um, I think we can discern these themes that I've been talking about. Now, here's a little um, analysis of the abstract. And say It's a re relatively short work. And what I've got here is an analysis which shows the number of paragraphs devoted to the various topics. So remember, this is supposed to be an abstract of the treatise of human nature, books one and two. Book three on morals hasn't yet appeared. Um, and what Hume is doing is presenting an account of the argument of the first two books of the treatise in such a way as to encourage people to go out and buy it. Now, the topics he deals with, well, there's an introduction. He says a little bit on probability. He brings in the copy principle, which we'll be talking about later today, that all ideas, all simple ideas at any rate, are derived from impressions. He then talks about induction. Now, that's a huge contrast with the treatise. In the treatise, the topic of induction only comes up in the context of seeking the origin of the idea of causation in Treatise 136. And it's a relatively short section. It's a very small part of Books 1 and 2 of the treatise. But look what happens to it in the abstract. It suddenly becomes a huge focus. 
And it remains that way in the inquiry of 1748, where section four is one of the longest sections and in a way constitutes the heart of the book. So I think in, those, in the middle of 1739, Hume realized that his argument concerning induction was uh, an absolute jewel, more important probably than the rest of his philosophy uh, or any other single topic in the rest of his philosophy. So he puts a huge emphasis on it. The topic of belief, which follows on from induction, is also given a lot of space. Um, we then get material on uh, the idea of necessity, so causation does come in here, but whereas in the treatise itself, causation was the central focus of Book 1, Part 3, uh, remember, I've given an account of why I think it's a central focus. I think the search for the origin of the idea of causation very likely was what brought Hume to his philosophical views. Um, here, it comes on as a, a sort of afterthought to induction. It's still important, but not as central as it was before. And then that is applied to the topic of liberty and necessity, free will and determinism. Uh, and then we get some other topics coming up, uh, just a paragraph on each. And at the end, there's a paragraph on associationism. So a very different picture from what you get if you read the treatise itself. And remember, this was written about nine months after he's published books one and two, and a full year before he's published book three of the treatise. So... Um, in these, these lectures, I'm going to be focusing mainly on these central topics until the last couple of lectures. And what I want to do now is sketch in a bit more detail these themes. So Hume starts from a theory of mental contents, impressions and ideas. And as I say, I'll be saying quite a lot about that later in this lecture. And crucially, he's an empiricist about ideas. He thinks all ideas are derived from impressions. So all the materials of our thought come from experience and ultimately from sensory experience. He also assumes a theory of faculties, and that, I think, can be very confusing, uh, which is why I'm going to devote part of this lecture to clarifying what's going on there. He expresses his results, or some of them, some of the most important results in terms of the theory of faculties, but actually, um, it, we, I don't think he's got a very substantial theory of faculties. I think he's using the theory of faculties as a way of, as it were, carving up the mind's operations. So I think it's a mistake to read too much into that. But understanding it is very important to seeing what he's doing. One of his main aims is to deny that we have rational insight into all sorts of things. Um, in particular, a priori, simply using our minds, we cannot know anything about what causes what. Crucially, we can't know a priori, for example, that matter can't cause thought. Um, also, <clears throat> as applied to his moral theory, say that's in book three, which will come later, he wants to deny that morality can be founded on reason. That doesn't actually mean he's as much of an irrationalist as some people think, uh, but we'll come to that in due course. Um, in his logic, this is something I'll be talking about at the beginning of next time, he draws a distinction between relations of ideas and matters of fact. 
Unfortunately, that distinction only appears in the first inquiry. In the treatise, instead, he provides a theory of relations which I think is best understood as an immature attempt to do the same thing. So he presents this theory of relations as part of his taxonomy of the contents of the mind. You know, here are these interesting complex ideas. Amongst these complex ideas, we have relations. Let's look at all the relations there are. Oh, look, we can divide these up into these two categories. Um, that can be very confusing because, unfortunately, it doesn't work. Hume's theory of relations, I think, is a failure in the treatise. But in the inquiry, he replaces it with a distinction between relations of ideas and matters of fact. And I think it's absolutely vital to understand that distinction, to understand Hume's philosophy, even in the treatise. Roughly, um, it's like the distinction, the modern distinction between analytic and synthetic propositions. Analytic propositions, those that are true by definition. Uh, relations of ideas in the sense that if you know the ideas, if you've grasped the ideas, you can just see by inspecting the ideas themselves that these propositions must be true. You don't need to go out and, uh, 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 and see the world in order to know that they're true. On the other hand, synthetic propositions, matters of fact, are things that could be true, could be false, depends how the world turns out. And therefore, you need to consult the world in order to find out whether they're true or not. Um, Importantly, Hume wants to claim uh, that things like um, uh, whether uh, objects will fall to earth, whether a billiard ball will move on being hit by another, um, and indeed whether matter can cause thought, all of these are synthetic. Uh, matters of fact, they cannot be known a priori. We also have a distinction between demonstrative and probable reasoning. Uh, the best way of understanding that, I think, is simply in terms of the modern distinction between deductive and inductive reasoning. So when, when Hume talks about a demonstrative argument, he means roughly what we would call a deductively valid argument, an argument which is such that, given the truth of the premises, the truth of the conclusion is guaranteed. It follows logically. Whereas probable reasoning is reasoning that we would now call inductive, where typically we're, we're drawing inferences from observed things to unobserved things, and it isn't logically guaranteed. There are some nuances here, and if you go and read the literature about this, you will find that some people come out with extremely elaborate theories of what Hume means by demonstration. For example, David Owen, Helen Beebe. Um, for now, let me just say, I think they're wrong. I think the simplest way of, un the best way of understanding Hume is to see him as essentially grasping hold of the modern distinction. Obviously, he's not worked it out with all the subtle nuances and so forth, but basically, it's the distinction between arguments which are logically guaranteed and those that aren't. So, with regard to his theory of induction, um, this is very well known, but we'll be looking at it in more detail uh, next time. It, he wants to say that any inductive inference, any inference whereby we draw a conclusion about a matter of fact which we haven't either observed or remembered, so a matter of fact that we haven't yet uh, seen to be true, um, any such inference is based on an assumption of uniformity, 
I've put it here as uniformity over time, but basically a uniformity between the observed and the unobserved. We assume that the unobserved will resemble the observed. And all our probable reasoning, all our inductive reasoning, if you like, is based on that. But that assumption itself cannot be given any rational foundation whatever. Okay. Instead, it's founded on something that Hume calls custom. And that's instinctive extrapolation from observed to unobserved. So when we find ourselves drawing inferences about the unobserved based on the assumption that it will follow the pattern of the observed, uh, we do that instinctively, and that instinct Hume calls custom. It's a, it might be better called habit. He does sometimes say habit or custom, but his usual word is custom. Do bear in mind when you read Hume, um, in his theoretical philosophy, when he's using the word custom, he means custom as the tendency to, to draw inferences about the future on the basis that they'll resemble the past. He's not talking about social customs and things like that. Now, that can make Hume seem an irrationalist, okay? Because he's saying that inductive inference is based on assumption, an assumption for which we can give no basis whatever. So people assume that Hume is terribly, you know, radically sceptical. I think actually it's a mistake to see this as radically sceptical. Certainly it's got an element of scepticism in it, uh, but I shall be explaining why I think actually Hume should be seen as very much an advocate of induction, not a critic of it. What he's trying to do is find the, the real basis for induction in human nature. And having done that, he's absolutely clear that we should do it. He, he in no way says, well, because of this basis, we should stop uh, inferring inductively. Now, importantly, um, when we find ourselves making customary inferences, we ascribe necessity to things. So let's suppose I see one billiard ball moving towards another. I've seen this lots of times in the past. I see the movement of the first billiard ball, and I find myself inferring motion in the second ball. I expect it to move, whether I like it or not. And even after I've read Hume's argument that persuades me that I've no reason whatever for supposing that the future will resemble the past, nevertheless, I see the ball moving, I expect the other one to move. And it's that expectation, that inference, that leads me to draw a conclusion about the unobserved, that is what, according to Hume, provides the basis of the idea of necessary connection. That feeling of inference, or the making of the inference, or the awareness of the inference, and it's a very interesting question how exactly we should parse that, is the basis of the idea of necessary connection. So remember, he's got this empiricist agenda of looking for the origin of all our ideas. I suggested last time that he may well have come into all this philosophical thought precisely by following Locke's agenda, you know, what is the basis of the idea of causation that plays such a big role in the cosmological argument of Locke and Clarke, um, this discussion about uh, matter and thought, uh, the question about free will and whether God is responsible for human evil. You know, the, the issue of necessity is crucial to all of these. And I think Hume came in wanting to find the origin of that, and ultimately he found it in... Uh, our tendency to make inductive inferences. Now, very importantly, he wants to go on to say 
just a bit like what I've just said about induction. You might think this is a sceptical result, okay? And a lot of people do interpret Hume sceptically. But I, I, I really think, in, in connection with necessity, that is absolutely a mistake. All right? People say, oh, Hume denies necessary connection. No, he does not. Absolutely not. Because what he does, he seeks for the origin of the idea of necessary connection, and he identifies the origin. Okay? He doesn't say, oh dear, this is an idea without any basis. It must be bogus. He doesn't do that. He identifies the impression of necessary connection in that inference of the mind. That legitimates the idea of necessary connection. It doesn't undermine it. But what he does want to say is that's the only legitimate source of the idea of necessary connection. That pins down what we must mean by necessary connection. We cannot legitimately mean anything else. Okay, we find, do we not, that exactly that kind of constant conjunction and inference, that is, seeing one thing following another again and again, in a way that's predictable and leads us to make predictions, exactly that kind of uniformity and inference apply to the moral world. Moral here mean, meaning human, okay? When Hume uses the word moral, it's not, he's normally talking about the human world, the world of human nature, moral science, not ethics, or not narrowly ethics, anyway. Okay, so exactly the same kind of constant conjunction and inference applies to the human world, as to the physical world, therefore exactly the same kind of necessary connection, exactly the same kind of causation. And I think we can see here um, Hume's interest in vindicating moral science. One of his ultimate aims is to argue that the human world is as susceptible of scientific causal explanation as the natural world. And Hume went on, after the treatise, to write essays in political theory and economics and psychology and history and uh, psychology of religion, for example. All of this can be seen as developing moral science. So, um, a couple of slogans there. A priori, anything may produce anything. Right? The upshot of his account of causation is that for one thing to cause another is a matter of constant conjunction and inference of the mind. Um, he thinks that a priori metaphysics is just out of the window. You cannot know a priori anything about what causes what. It's simply a question of what things are constantly conjoined. So notice, again, that can look like a sceptical result, okay? Oh dear, we can't know anything a priori. But actually in Hume's hands it's not a sceptical result. It's more an invocation to go and do empirical science. If you cannot know a priori what causes what, then the way to find out what causes what is to go and look at the world. So again, he's pro-inductive science, not anti. All objects which are found to be constantly conjoined are upon that account only to be regarded as causes and effects. So again, go out into the world, find out what things are constantly conjoined, that's how you do science. What it tells us about the nature of science is um, important, and here Hume's theory probably seems relatively 
ordinary and boring to us and commonsensical, uh, whereas back in his day it would have seemed more revolutionary. What he's saying ultimately is that the only thing the scientist can aspire to do, given that he can't expect ultimate understanding of why things work as they do, is systematization. Reducing the principles that govern natural things to a greater simplicity. And that fits very much with modern science. Okay, people working, say, in physics now do not expect to be able to understand a priori why quantum particles work in the way they do. But what they do is look at the complex of ways in which quantum particles behave uh, using their empirical investigations and try and reduce those to order to as few simple rules as possible. And this is what Hume is advocating. This passage is from the inquiry, and I think it's the, um, the clearest statement of that. Okay, so much for general overview. Now what I'm going to do is go through the theory of ideas and Hume's theory of relations. And now I'm going to try to speed up a little bit. Um, you've got the, all the material on the slides, so I'm just going to um, go quite quickly uh, through this, drawing attention to the main point. First of all, uh, what is an idea? Well, John Locke uses the word idea in a very general sense. Whatsoever is the object of the understanding when a man thinks. Um, and notice that that's supposed to include all types of thinking. Sensory uh, awareness, so when I see something, uh, as well as when I think about it. And that might seem a little bit too broad. Indeed, Hume adapts Locke's terminology um, and I think improves it. So he draws a distinction between impressions and ideas. Where Locke had talked about ideas in both senses, Hume uses the word impression for a sensation or a feeling. So, for example, if I see the blue sky, I smell a flower. Imagine smelling lavender or something. That, that smell, that's an impression. Um, or imagine feeling something. Suppose you feel angry and you're aware of that feeling, that is an impression that you're getting. Whereas an idea is a thought. So when you think about the sky, having seen it, I can't see the sky at the moment, but I can think of the blueness of the sky this morning. Um, or I have a pain, and then maybe I think about it later, and I think, oh, that was a horrible pain I had in my foot. I'm thinking about the pain now. I'm not actually getting an impression of it. That's an idea. And Hume uses the term slightly, it's not an ideal term, I have to say, but Hume uses it. The word perception for Hume is either an impression or an idea. So he's replacing Locke's word idea with the word perception. And I do think that's a little bit infelicitous, because we think of perception as very closely related to sensory perception, whereas Hume is using the word perception to cover impressions and ideas. So just be aware of that when you read Hume. Okay, so there are two main sources of impressions. There's impressions of sensation and impressions of reflection. So <coughs> impressions of sensation, that's basically from the external senses, uh, but also bodily uh, sensations. On the other hand, you've got impressions of reflection, 
which are basically feelings, passions, uh, desires, that sort of thing. Now, impressions of reflection, Hume ten tends to think in terms of passions and emotions. So, <clears throat> I think this actually somewhat impoverishes Hume's thought. He's got the idea of external sensations, so for example, you know, sight, hearing, taste, smell, etc. And he's then got the idea that somehow when we look inside ourselves, when we reflect on what's going on in our minds, we can be aware of um, feelings in much the same sort of way as we are aware of external sensations. So feeling my anger, say, is not so very different from sensing uh, the colour of the light. And when he thinks in these terms, he, he's very much focusing, when he looks inside himself, as at, he's focusing on um, what we would call emotional aspects, passions, desires and so forth, um, and feelings like happiness. Well, I'll come back to that in um, a little bit later, because I think there's a, there is an issue there um, which we will see playing out in some of Hume's arguments. So what's the distinction between impressions and ideas? Well, if you read the point where he introduces this, this is the very first paragraph of the treatise, you would think that he's defining them in terms of force and vivacity. All the perceptions of the human mind resolve themselves into two distinct kinds, which I shall call impressions and ideas. The difference betwixt these consists in the force and liveliness with which they strike upon the soul and make their way into our thought or consciousness. Those which enter with more fo most force and violence we may name impressions. But almost immediately Hume recognises that there's a problem here, or at least he raises a problem without really um, making clear that he is fully aware of it. In sleep, in a fever, in madness, or in any very violent emotions of soul, our ideas may approach to our impressions. And it sometimes happens that our impressions are so faint and low that we cannot distinguish them from our ideas. Well, yeah, actually, if you interpret force and vivacity in the obvious way, this is a real problem, isn't it? I mean, he seems to have defined impressions as being more forceful, vivacious, lively than ideas. But suppose you dream of an attack of spiders. I bet most of you don't like the thought of having spiders crawling all over you. Now imagine dreaming of that. Or even thinking of that now. Go on, think of it. <laughs> and now compare that with the impression you get watching paint dry. Which of those is more forceful and vivacious? Surely the idea of the spiders, even though that involves an idea, not an impression. So there's a problem for Hume here. Now, I think basically you will understand Hume best if you forget about 
that early bit where Hume seems to be defining the difference between ideas and impressions in terms of force and vivacity, essentially what Hume is trying to do, and not succeeding terribly well, is to pin down the difference between feeling and thinking. And here it seems uh, he's saying just that. I believe it will not be very necessary to employ many words in explaining this distinction. Every one of himself will readily perceive the difference betwixt feeling and thinking. So take that as the definition of ideas and impressions, not uh, their relative vivaciousness. Okay, now some ideas can be divided up, some can't. So take an apple, right? There's an, you're getting an impression of an apple, so am I. And there's the shape, the color, the smell, the taste, if I were to take a bite of it. And of course the shape of the apple is a complex shape, it's not uh, a simple one, you've got the stalk, etc. Um, and we can put ideas together in new ways. So you can get the idea of gold, the idea of a mountain, put them together, and you've got the idea of a golden mountain. Take that shape and imagine taking a bite of it and it tastes just like an apple. Right? You can imagine that. Okay. That's the idea of a banana apple. Looks like a banana, tastes like an apple. So, we've got a lot of freedom in our thought. We can take our ideas, uh, we can take a complex of them, and divide those up, and then rearrange them in new ways. Now, in Treatise 1134, he, he refers to this, this as his second principle. And if you look ahead to Treatise 1173, that's the third paragraph of Section 7 of Book 1, Part 1, there, he announces a principle about the separability of ideas in rather strange words, because he says, we have said that. And he hasn't actually said it. The nearest to it comes in 1134, where he talks about the liberty of the imagination to rearrange our ideas. Now, the problem is that when Hume uses this separability principle, as it's commonly caused, called, that's the, the principle that appears in, in section 7, he goes on and uses it, particularly in book 1, part 2, on space and time. And he uses it in some ways which seem quite dubious. It looks like he's pulling some rabbits out of hats using this separability principle. And it looks as though it's become something far more than simply the liberty of the imagination. Now, in these lectures, I'm not going to actually talk about Book 1, Part 2. Uh, I did last year, and you can go and look at uh, the appropriate lecture there. Um, but it seems to me that when Hume is using the separability principle, he's getting ever so close to the kind of a priori metaphysics which he himself condemned. I think it's interesting that after the treatise, that principle never appears again. So I suspect that he's going too far uh, when he moves from the simple liberty of the imagination to move our ideas around to a principle that anything that we can separate really is separable. I'm not going to say very much on the separability principle, but it will come up a bit in what follows. 
The distinction between simple and complex ideas, well, we've already seen uh, a hint of that. In talking about the idea of the apple, I mentioned that it had lots of different components, uh, the smell, the shape, the taste, and so forth. Um, imagine that we divided this complex up more and more and more until we got to absolute simples. And you might wonder what those absolute simples will be, but at any rate in the treatise, Hume is clear that there are such things. Simple, simple perceptions or impressions and ideas are such as admit of no distinction or separation. The complex are the contrary to these and may be distinguished into parts. Now, I wonder if Hume had his doubts about the simple complex distinction. Not sure, it's very unclear, but he doesn't actually draw it as such in the inquiry. Uh, he does talk about simplest ideas. Uh, he certainly talks about ideas that are complex, but it's not clear that he anymore thinks there's an absolute distinction to be drawn. Um, why not? Well, one speculating here, but in, in Book 1, part two, uh, part 2, On Space and Time, that I mentioned before, um, essentially you get the idea that, that a simple idea of either visual or tactile is going to consist of a minimum perceptible part. So I mentioned that the idea of the apple, sorry, that the shape of the apple was complex. And you might have thought, yeah, it's complex because it's not circular. If it were spherical, then that would be a simple idea, you might think, a simple idea of shape. But in fact, Hume's idea seems to be that even where you've got a sphere, you can imagine it divided into lots of little bits lots of little pixels, as it were. In fact, the modern computer screen gives a very nice analogy of the sort of way that Hume seems to think about visual ideas. Um, a simple idea has to be one that you can't divide into parts. So Hume is driven to a sort of atomism about visual ideas, where even a, even a pure sphere or circle of red is made up of countless little um, minima, each of them red, lots of little red points. And again, this plays out with his discussions of separability and uh, the liberty of the imagination. So I think it, you can see that as lying behind quite a lot of his thought in the treatise. But it, that way of looking at things pretty much disappears later. I shall not be focusing much on it in these series of lectures uh, because I'm going to be looking at the, particularly at the parts of Hume's philosophy that are most enduring. Okay, the origin of ideas, I've already uh, said that Hume gets this largely from Locke. Uh, Locke put a lot of emphasis in um, book one of his essay concerning human understanding into attacking uh, innate principles. <clears throat> That's actually, I think, the least interesting part of Locke's essay. Um, in book two, what Locke did was give an account of how lots of our ideas can be understood as arising from experience. And I think we can see Hume as taking forward that agenda. Now, Locke, Locke's target here is people like Descartes. Descartes famously said that the idea of God is innate, the idea of extension is innate. So Descartes claimed that because these ideas were there innately in the human mind, we could know things a priori just by unpacking the contents of those ideas, like, for example, in the ontological argument. Uh, whereas Locke wants to say, no, all our ideas come from experience. 
Now, it's important to realise that when Hume wrote, this was indeed orthodoxy. Okay? Lots of people agreed with Locke, uh, thought he'd conclusively shown that all ideas come from experience. So when Hume presents this principle, um, he doesn't expect it to be particularly controversial. Here's how he presents it. Notice he doesn't want to say that all our ideas are derived from experience. The idea of a golden mountain isn't derived from experience. Okay, that's a complex idea. It's put together from simples. The crucial point is that the simples are derived from experience. So all the components of our ideas, all the ultimate components, have to be derived from impressions. So all our simple ideas in their first appearance are derived from simple impressions which are correspondent to them and which they exactly represent. And Hume actually uses this mainly as a tool for clarifying ideas. Uh, if you read the Inquiry presentation, which is much more famous, actually, it's very well known, um, from Inquiry 2.9, it looks like what, Locke, what Hume's going to be doing is saying, where is the impression from which this idea is derived? There is none, therefore it's a bogus idea. Actually, he doesn't do much of that at all. Nearly always, he's using it in order to clarify ideas rather than to cast them out. Very uh, quickly and crudely, I think Hume's arguments for the copy principle are really weak. I am a great admirer of Hume. Uh, most of Hume's arguments are very good. Uh, these strike me as being relatively weak. And of the arguments that found their way into Hume's inquiry of 1748, they are pretty much by far the weakest, I think. Uh, the inquiry tends to contain the sort of highlights of the most important topics from the treatise. Um, and I think Hume selected the topics pretty well. You know, most of the sections of the inquiry are still of considerable philosophical importance. But I'm afraid the arguments for the copy principle still seem to me, at any rate, to be rather weak ones. You will find people like Don Garrett who try to defend them, and I'm not going to go into detail here, um, but my suggestion is that generally one does rather get the impression that Hume is so persuaded of idea empiricism that he pretty much takes it for granted. Um, he, he reaches the conclusion about the copy principle incredibly quickly, and he never goes back and looks carefully and critically at his own arguments. A real contrast with what you get later. Now, some issues about the theory of ideas, and here I do want to go quite quickly. Um, the general picture here, and I'm not saying it infects everything that Hume says, because it doesn't, uh, but be aware of it, that there's a tendency to assimilate thinking with perceiving. And you can see this in Hume's use of the word perception for impressions and ideas. It's as though when you're thinking, that's just like seeing something, or imagining it, which is kind of like a faint image of seeing it. And that's it. And you can see that that makes the mind look very passive. Uh, so seeing a tree is having an impression of a tree in front of the mind. Thinking of a tree is having an idea of a tree in front of the mind. Feeling a pain is having an impression of a pain. Thinking about a pain involves having an idea of a pain. Come on, they're not that similar, really, are they? Or imagine now about arguing something, 
or doubting something. Can you really say that doubting something is just having a, an idea that's fainter or something? You know, you get some real problems here, and Hume, I think, is very much aware of these after the treatise. If you look at the appendix to the treatise, which was published along with Book 3 in November 1740, um, you see that Hume's confidence in his theory of belief is very much reduced, and he seems to be appreciating that he's running up here, there against the, the, the limits of the theory of ideas. Now again, put the copy principle in there as well. Well, if ideas are copy of, copies of, of impressions, I mean, and Hume does take this very seriously, right? All the materials of our thought are copied from sensation. So our ideas really are like faint images of sensory perceptions. Um, well, I think you can see this having an effect. I've mentioned the separability principle already. When he talks about mental separability, I think often his instincts there, the, the sort of conclusions that he's tempted to draw when thinking about the separability of ideas can be explained quite well if you think of him as imagining it as something like manipulating a raster image. You know, when, you have a, when, you, when you're using Photoshop or something and you take bits of the image and you move them around. It's almost as though he's thinking in that way when he talks about mental separability. Uh, I've mentioned the faculty of reflection. He assimilates reflection which is an important source of ideas, all right? He says we get all our ideas from impressions, impressions either of sensation or reflection. So the idea of um, yellow I might get from that light, the idea of anger I get from having the impression of anger. And I've mentioned that, it, that he seems to treat those as broadly equivalent. Feeling anger is like seeing something. It's a kind of like a sense. But, but now think about intellectual activities, doubting, reasoning, inferring. And it's very interesting, incidentally, to look at when, when Locke discusses reflection. He says, too, oh, it's like a kind of internal sense. But these are the sorts of examples that Locke gives, things like doubting and reasoning. Now, getting the idea of doubting by internal reflection isn't at all, is it, like having an external sensation? It's, it's, it's not really like feeling something. It's more like mental monitoring, monitoring what's going on in your mind, being aware of the passage of ideas in your mind and what's going on. And I think Hume rather runs these together. They seem to me to be distinct. You know, mental monitoring of what's going on in your mind is one thing, Sensing things, feeling things, is another. Uh, but both for Locke and Hume, they tend to be classified together under the heading of reflection. Locke emphasizes the intellectual uh, aspects and rather neglects the, the passions and emotions. Hume's the other way around. Now, the association of ideas plays a big role um, in Hume's thinking. We've seen that he... Um, is keen on the liberty of the imagination, the fact that we can take our simple ideas and rearrange them to produce new complex ideas. But at the same time, he wants to say that our ideas 
standardly follow a pattern. Uh, there's a kind of pressure on them to move in consistent ways. When we think of one thing, it nat naturally leads our thoughts to something else. And he thinks that there are th basically three relations which um, underlie this kind of a mental movement. Resemblance, contiguity, and cause and effect. So if we think of something, uh, I may think of my house, it naturally leads my thought to a similar house, or to a, thought to a house which is next door. Or maybe it leads my thought to the builder of the house, cause and effect. Now, Hume is going to do a lot with the association of ideas, as we'll see. Um, be aware of what a radical departure this is from Locke. This is Locke talking about the association of ideas. This sort of madness, this weakness to which all men are liable, a taint which universally infects mankind. There is a connection of ideas wholly owing to chance or custom. Ideas that in themselves are not at all of kin come to be so united in some men's minds that it is very, it is very hard to separate them. Hume is going to make this association of ideas in the form of custom the very basis of all of our empirical reasoning. So that's a very major contrast from Locke. Okay, I'm now going to move on from the theory of ideas and very briefly summarise Hume's faculty psychology. As I say, what we're doing here is looking at the, the, the basic building blocks, or the foundations, if you like, of a lot of Hume's philosophy. So, we've seen the distinction between sensation and reflection, different sources of impressions. Uh, he also distinguishes between ideas of the memory and imagination. So some of our ideas uh, come from things we remember. Other ideas, we're mixing around the components, making up new ideas, and that's the imagination. Now, some of Hume's most famous arguments are put in terms of faculties. Um, I, I'm going to be expressing some doubt about whether faculties play quite the role in Hume's philosophy that many think they do. But what is um, absolutely clear is that if you, if you want to understand Hume's main arguments here, you need to know roughly what he means by these faculty terms. So here is the, um, where Hume is raising the question of his discussion of induction in the treatise. The next question is whether experience produces the idea, that's the inductive inference, by means of the understanding or imagination, whether we're determined to, by reason to make the transition or by association of perceptions. And then here he is on the external world. The subject then of our present inquiry is concerning the causes which induce us to believe in the existence of body. We shall consider whether it be the senses, reason, or the imagination that produces the opinion of a continued or of a distinct existence. So here he's giving three faculties as possible sources of that belief. And his argument is going to be designed to show that it's the imagination rather than the senses or reason. What about morality? Well, here we have from the first uh, section of book three of the treatise, we need only consider whether it be possible from reason alone to distinguish betwixt moral good and evil. 
Uh, here in the Moral Inquiry of uh, 1751, he's asking whether morality is derived from reason or from sentiment. So you'll see that reason is playing a big role here. And in virtually every case, Hume is denying that reason plays the role that rationalist philosophers thought it did. Almost always his answer to, is reason the source of X, is no. So we need to know what he means by reason. Well, first here's a very quick resume of the faculties that Hume recognises. So what I've done is gone through all the faculty terms that Hume uses in the treatise, uh, searching for all occurrences of, you know, where he uses the word faculty, uh, and basically giving a, a, a taxonomy of them. So you've got the external sen senses, you know, sight, hearing, etc. You've got reflection, we've seen that. You've got memory. Memory replays ideas to us. <clears throat> and memory is quite vivacious. Uh, when memory replays our ideas, they have a, a, a strength to them. We feel they have to appear in that order. Uh, we can't just rearrange them like we can in the imagination. The imagination replays ideas let to us less vivaciously and gives us the freedom to mix our ideas up. As we've seen, we can mix and match them, create new complex ideas. And then we have reason or the understanding. Okay, now some of this is potentially, well, it is controversial. Uh, I am saying, first of all, that for Hume, reason and the understanding are the same thing. And secondly, I think by reason, he simply means the overall cognitive faculty. And that is to be distinguished from the will, which is the cognitive faculty. So the cognitive faculty, in Hume's terms, is that which judges truth and falsehood. It's how we discover what is the case. Whereas the will is the faculty uh, by which we form intentions and decide to act. So here's a quotation from Francis Hutcheson, um, and this was added to his illustrations on the moral sense in 1742. Uh, interesting that. Uh, in 1740, uh, he had looked at, the, at Hume's treatise, including the draft of Book 3, and had made critical comments to Hume on that draft, here he is saying, writers on these subjects should remember the common division of the faculties of the soul. It's interesting. He actually had four, four publications in 1742, all of which introduced discussion of faculties. Whether that was prompted at all by his interaction with Hume, I don't know. But Hutchison's view here is absolutely standard. He's saying, Basically, the human mind divides into two bits. You've got reason on the one hand and the will. Uh, reason presents the nature and relations of things antecedently to any act of will. So reason is, is the means by which you find out what's the case. Having found out what's the case, you can then make your plans. And making your plans is what the will does. And the senses report to reason. They're aspects of our cognitive nature. The passions inform the will. And notice that Hutchison is very clearly here using reason and the understanding as absolutely equivalent. Hume also does exactly the same. Um, if you read that uh, passage there, you will see it's absolutely clear that Hume is using the fancy 
as a synonym for the imagination, as he commonly does, and he's using the understanding as a synonym for reason. And there are plenty of other cases where he does the same. So don't be confused by Hume's elegant variation. It's a shame. Um, when you write philosophy in general, if you mean the same thing, you should use the same word. But some people are taught, presumably Hume was taught, that elegant variation is a really good thing. And so you will read a section in which he talks about the understanding, then reason, then the understanding again, or the imagination, the fancy, and then the imagination again. All right, these are just synonyms. So look at these passages. And these are where Hume is most explicit about what reason is. Reason is the discovery of truth or falsehood. That faculty by which we discern truth and falsehood. Reason in a strict sense as meaning the judgment of truth and falsehood. I think these pretty clearly line up Hume with those who think of reason, that is the understanding, as our cognitive faculty. And I shall explain the impact of that on what he says about induction and the external world and morality and so on, uh, which is somewhat different from what is commonly supposed. Here I've listed some uh, references for you if you want to go and chase up uh, where Hume draws distinctions between these different faculties. Um, for example, imagination and memory. He puts a whole section, Treatise 135, into distinguishing between the imagination and memory. Um, if you go and follow these up, look at these passages, I think it will give you uh, a clearer understanding of, as it were, the, the structure of the mind in terms of the faculties as Hume sees it. Importantly, he never distinguishes between reason and the understanding, never distinguishes between either of those and the judgment. And if you look at this major footnote in the treatise, you'll find that there's good reason to think that Hume basically thinks our intellectual faculty is a, a unity. Um, I'm going to end this discussion of the faculties, very brief uh, outline of the faculties, with an important point. John Locke talks about faculties, but he emphasises that we mustn't take faculty talk too seriously. Uh, to say that, to refer to man's understanding, all you're doing is referring to the fact that people have a power to understand. That's it. Don't imagine that we're referring to anything more solid than that. It's a mistake, says Locke, to speak of our faculties as though they were so many distinct agents. Now, with Hume, it's actually very tempting to do that because you read, um, you read the discussion in which Hume says, reason could not do this without the help of the imagination. And you think, well, he must think of these as separate agents, right? You've got reason desperately trying to do whatever it is, make inductive inferences or you know, identify external objects. And then you've got the imagination coming in and saying, oh, it's all right, I'll lend you a hand. Now, I don't think Hume should be read in that way, but undoubtedly some of Hume's arguments lend themselves to being read in this way. So I'll be talking about how they can be read without falling into that problem. And I will simply refer you to two passages where Hume himself clearly identifies exactly the same kind of fault that Locke is referring to. So we do have a reason 
although Hume's language clearly shows that we need to understand something by his talk of faculties, uh, we shouldn't take it too seriously. See you next week.